It's perhaps true uh, that we are becoming frustrated by the powerlessness of the Christian life. Is it perhaps true that we in here are becoming maybe slightly disillusioned by the seeming inactivity of the Lord our God? Do you you see what I mean? We come in here and each uh, Sunday morning kind of seems the same, doesn't it? In some ways, you know, we sing the same type of songs and we see the same uh, people. And there's all these sort of dramatic works of God going on in our midst. And, and, and maybe our lives outside of here are kind of the same as that, aren't they? You know, are, are we really seeing detectable changes in our hearts? And are we seeing detectable changes in the people that we're praying for and the people we live around? And, and that there, that lack of, or that seeming lack of activity, it can get us down. Are we becoming frustrated by the powerlessness of the Christian life? Well, this morning, what I hope happens is that through his word, God reminds us in here, not just of the the power that's available to us, but also the power that is at work in us by the Holy Spirit, by his Holy Spirit. Because this morning, we come to Mark chapter 1 from verse 21, and this is a passage where Jesus begins really his active ministry in Galilee. And what I need you to see is that all the way through this, and I'm talking about everything that you've got in front of you, we see the immeasurable and the incredible and the life-changing and the almost frightening power and authority of the Lord your God. That power is in focus this morning. So, With that said, I would invite you as a congregation, please, to have Scripture open in front of you. So if you could please turn with me to to Mark uh, 1 from verse 21 to 28. And we'll look at that section. We'll look at it in a few sections. Uh, So first of all, let's consider what we see here about the authority of Jesus' teaching. Okay, the authority of Jesus' teaching. What do we see about that in this text? Okay. Look, the look, the very first words you've got in front of you uh, acts as a bit of a, a, a fantastic memory prompt for us. Do you see what the first word is? Verse twenty-one. It's the word there. Uh, sorry, they. Now that reminds us. Okay, Jesus. What do we? What have we seen last couple of weeks? Jesus isn't alone here, is he? At this point. And do you remember what we saw last week? He's begun to call people. He's calling these men to himself. So at this point, Jesus is actually the leader of a growing group of disciples, okay? So it's they. But where do they go? Do you see where they go? They travel into Capernaum, and we're told that they immediately enter into the local synagogue. Now, I want to stop there. I want you to think about that. Jesus immediately goes into the synagogue. See, we've heard it before. I'm pretty sure you'll have heard this before, that the, uh, the idea that Jesus hates religion. You heard that? That's quite a common thing here. Certainly evangelical churches, we hear that idea. Jesus, Jesus despises religion. I don't, I don't know if you remember, there was a video 
I think it was released maybe last year, two years ago, kind of went viral around Christian circles. It was done by this young Christian bloke in the States, and it was a slick video. It was a very good video. And his point in the video was that Jesus longs for personal relationship with people, but that he despises religion. He doesn't want religion. He wants people's... Now, does Jesus hate religion? Is that, is that, I ask you, is that a correct idea? Is that a biblical idea? Well, here's the thing. I wonder if you remember a couple of years ago in the congregation, we had a very short sermon series where we looked at John's gospel and we looked at the signs in John's gospel. Now, if you were here, it's a couple of years ago now, do you remember how that sermon series began? We remember, or we, we saw rather, that by Jesus conducting his first miracle at a wedding, that part, amongst many other things, one of the things that Jesus was doing was affirming or validating the institution of marriage by using that, a wedding, as the location of his first miracle. Do you see it? Now, wait a minute. Do you see the parallel here? Like in Mark's gospel, what's the location that Jesus chooses for for his first sign, his first healing? What does he choose here? He chooses a religious setting. He, he, wait a minute, he chooses here a public Sabbath service. Do you, do you see the, the point here? Like Jesus Christ is affirming here. He is validating the idea of the corporate gathering to worship God. Now, of course, we understand that people had it wrong and what Christ longs for and what he wants is gospel worship, worship in his name. But you do see the lesson, do you? We as Christians have got to be very careful about dismissing the idea of organized religion. It's not only something that is endorsed by Jesus, it's something that ultimately was instituted by the Lord our God. So we see where they go, okay? They go into the synagogue. Okay, now what is it that happens? What does Jesus do in the synagogue? Do you see? He begins to teach. Jesus begins to teach. Okay, now, what Mark tells us here that what's notable about Jesus teaching on this particular day was, what does he say, is the incredible authority in which it was, it was conducted. So there's a startling power um, in Jesus' teaching in the synagogue that day. Now, if you and I this morning are going to understand what that looked like, you know, if we're going to understand what this authority of Jesus' teaching actually involved, then what we've got to do is pay close attention to the contrast that Mark draws here. Did you see the contrast? Where is it? It's verse 20. Look at it. He's saying, Jesus spoke with authority, and we're thinking, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? And he says, Jesus spoke with authority not as the scribes, not as the teachers of the law. So we're asking, okay, what did, who were these guys and what did they teach like? You know? Well, one of our young blokes, uh, Dan Borvin, he's known to, to most of us here, a PhD guy, super smart bloke, 
uh, he is currently away, taking a break from the PhD, and he's away in the States for a holiday. Uh, sounds okay, doesn't it? And as part of the break, what Dan's doing is heading off, I think it's into rural Tennessee, uh, where he's, he's hoping to meet with a retired lecturer in church history, okay? The sort of thing we all want to do on our holidays, you know? And, uh, like, this guy that Dan's meeting is the guru, you know? Like, he is the sort of expert, from what I can make out, he is the world expert on Dan's particular area of study. And so reading between the lines, you kind of see what Dan's trying to do, I think. I mean, this is an elderly bloke, so I think Dan's wanting to pick this guy's brains, you know, get all of his information before the guy passes on and dies. Okay, so I think that's what's going on. Now, see that guy? That's what we've got to be thinking about when we're talking about scribes and the teachers of the law that are mentioned here. Because, like, you know, as, as well as I do, that at this time when Mark's writing this, that a whole heap of sort of man-made rules have grown up around Scripture, haven't they? Like, by this time, first century, a whole sort of extra scriptural stuff had kind of grown up around the Bible. And these scribes, this is what I need you to see, these scribes, these teachers of the law that are kind of portrayed as being very cold toward Jesus, right to it, they were the experts in this stuff. You see it? These scribes, they were the, they were the go-to guys when it came to all these, what were they called? Teachings of, or the traditions of the fathers. So do you see this morning what Mark is saying here? He's saying that as Jesus on that morning in the, in the, in the synagogue, as he got to his feet, and as he began to teach the people, he spoke entirely differently to those scribes. Do you see it? Where these guys, they claimed authority from their Jewish fathers. Do you see it? Jesus spoke with direct authority from who? From his heavenly father. Where these guys would stand to give kind of unconvincing pronouncements from, from man-made rules. Not Jesus. Jesus proclaimed truth from Holy Scripture itself. And can you imagine how these guys taught? It would have been academic and it would have been a bit dull and a bit boring. Not Jesus. He spoke with passion. He spoke with color. He spoke with vigor. There had never, ever, ever been teaching like this before. Now, I wish I had been there. But there's a question, isn't there? Like, what do we do with this? We're seeing this authority. We're seeing this power in Jesus' teaching. What does it mean for us or for you? Well, how did I start the sermon? You know, we're we're perhaps bemoaning a lack of, of power. We're bemoaning a lack of activity in the life of the church. I need you to understand that this power, this same power, not a worn-down version of it, not a weakened derivative version of it, that same power is available to you as Christians and available to the church of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a thought? Isn't it? We are not just sort of weak, helpless clones sent out by God into the world. What are we? We are ambassadors for Christ. Do you see it? We are sent out with what? With 
his very own authority, with his very own power. And maybe, you see that, maybe that should inform how the church witnesses and how the church preaches. You see what I mean? Maybe there should be in the modern church fewer sort of take it or leave it, nice little chats from the pulpit. Maybe we should, given this authority, maybe we should proclaim truth. Maybe this should inform how we preach and witness. But definitely, this, what we're seeing this morning, should inform how we worship God. See, I ask you this. Why, as these people looked at Jesus, why did they think this man had authority? Why did they think he had authority? Do you see the answer? It's because he had authority, didn't he? You know, he could speak with power from the Word of God. Why? Because he was the incarnate Word of God. And he could stand in front of those people and he could speak with license from Holy Scripture. Why? How could he do that? Because he himself, by his own spirit, had written Holy Scripture. Do you see it that day, that morning, in the synagogue? What was on display? Authority. Why? Because God himself was present in that place. God himself was preaching. What was he preaching? He was preaching his own gospel. Man. We see here in Mark 1, the authority of Jesus' teaching. Secondly, I want us to, to note here the ascendancy of Jesus' power. So the authority of Jesus' teaching. Secondly, the ascendancy of Jesus. And see, see with us, we're, we're coming to the main event, okay? In the, second, the main event, this is uh, where we see Mark's first recorded miracle of Jesus' uh, earthly ministry, the healing of a demon-possessed man. Friends, if you and I are going to enter into this miracle in any meaningful way, surely there's a kind of obvious kind of topic we've got to address, isn't there? Like demon possession. I mean, is that a real thing? Like what we're reading here in Mark, is this... Is this not just a kind of unscientific, ill-educated, uncultured uh, people trying to deal with maybe mental illness? Is that not what this is here, Mark 1? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Mark, very clever, Mark in his gospel, he, he, he portrays, he has a linguistic divide between, on one hand, matters of healing, healing even of the mind, and on the other hand, he has uh, matters of cleansing from evil and from wickedness. What Mark is doing in his gospel portrays very clearly the influence of the demonic and the influence of Satan and the influence of evil, okay? So it's real in Mark chapter 1. There's an obvious other question that we've got to deal with then, isn't there? If it's real in Mark chapter 1, is it real today? Like, is there, in 21st century, is there any such thing as demon possession? Is this, is this real at all? 
Well, surely the answer to that is less so, but yes. Less so, but yes. And I think I'll add to that. I'm inclined to say that we in conservative church circles like ours, maybe reformed church circles like ours, we've been remiss in underestimating the power of evil and the power of Satan, have we not? And the power of the demonic. Like we in Calvinistic churches like, like this, we maybe speak well on sin, but I think we speak less well on Satan. But, but come on, what happens here? What, what happens in the synagogue? Well, I don't know if you're a boxing fan. I know some of you really are. I think it's UFC or whatever it is, and, and boxing, you love boxing. Even if you're not a boxing fan, you know how a, a fight begins, a, a bout begins. The referee will get into the center of the ring, the microphone will come down, and the referee will uh, define the fight won't he? He'll sort of say, this is a heavyweight championship bout, and it will be a bout of 12 two-minute rounds or something like that. I've got no idea how long a round is, but let's see, 12 two-minute rounds. Now, what I want you to see is that that's what we're dealing with in the, the book of Mark, that all the way through this gospel, there is a fight there is a contest, there is a bout, and it is broken up into different parts. And if you think about that, it's a fight between Jesus, obviously, and the powers of Satan. If you think about that for a moment, you think, well, hang on a second. Yes, we've already seen round one, haven't we? You think back last week, think back the week before, what did we have? We had Jesus fighting Satan where? In the wilderness. Do you see it? We've had round one. And what we've got, and what we're dealing with here in the synagogue today, is very much round two. Well, what I want to show you in the text here is the reality of this being a fight and a contest and a bout. Okay, so I need you to do this with me. If you would just look at the opening phrase of verse 24. I'll let you get that. The opening phrase of verse 24. So you've got a picture of the scene. So Jesus has preached, he's spoken, and there's this demon-possessed man. He, he addresses Jesus, and what does he ask? He says, Jesus, what do you want with us? Now, maybe on the face of things this morning, you're thinking, it seems, seems a pretty sort of ordinary, kind of mundane question, doesn't it? Jesus, what do you want with us? It doesn't seem to be sort of packed with loads and loads of meaning. What do you want with us? I need you to see that it, that it was. I need you to see that, that frequently in the Old Testament, that question there, that exact question, is used as a statement of warfare. Like it's a statement of confrontation. What do you want with, with us? Do you see what's going here at this point? The demon is taking Jesus on. And see that atmosphere of confrontation in the synagogue? It's added to by the way this demon addresses Jesus. Do you see what he says? Look at it. He call, he sort of displays this supernatural knowledge and the demon, demon-possessed man says, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. And like maybe, again, 
this morning you're thinking, oh, so what? He calls Jesus the Holy, Holy One of God. What do we know? We know that, well, actually, he kind of was the Holy One of God. I mean, what's the, the big deal here? Well, get this. Exorcisms were pretty common uh, at this point in, in this part of the world, okay? And what we know is that when an exorcist was trying to sort of free a, a, a demon-possessed man from the, you know, the shackles of evil and, and so forth, that one of the most common ways of trying to do that, ready for this? It was to use the demon's name. It was to use the demon's title as a way of kind of gaining mastery, gaining control over the wicked one. Do you see now what's going on here in this fight? Do you see it? That's reversed. Here the demon-possessed man uses Jesus' name. He is trying to defeat. He's trying to gain mastery over Christ. And I need you to see the comprehensiveness of the victory that Jesus wins. Do you see it? What happens here? What happens? Jesus rebukes the demon-possessed man. And the, the demon has to go. And there's an amazing degree of power, isn't there? There's no sort of hands on heads, as you might expect, from some sort of exorcism. There's, there's no spell. There's no rigmarole. There's nothing. Such is the power of Jesus Christ. He simply speaks, and the powers of evil, they come, they come to nothing. Same question as before. What do we do with this? How do we apply this incredible power here? Well, friends, surely you see this morning that this battle raging with evil here, that it is an illustration of what Christ can do for the people who stand before him. Now, you hear me on this. As we come into the world, we come in under the influence of evil. We come in by our nature under the influence of sin. And what Mark is saying here is that Jesus Christ has the power to change that. He's saying that Jesus Christ has the power to, to free from the bondage of evil. That he has the power to restore people to a, a full and beautiful experience of humanity before God. Jesus has the power to do that. And I want to say this. That Jesus doesn't just have the power to do this. Jesus isn't just going to, in the future, do this with people around the world. I want you to understand that Jesus is doing this here in the life of London City Presbyterian Church. This freeing from evil he is doing here. Isn't that amazing? Like we're maybe bemoaning the inactivity of God. We're maybe bemoaning a powerlessness in the church. Believe me when I tell you, Jesus Christ is at work in this congregation, this place. And okay, maybe this morning we're not seeing people as here sort of riding around on the floor and the demons are coming out of them. Maybe we're not going to see that. Do you know what? We see something better in this place, don't we? We see people who are under the yoke of sin, under the yoke of evil, and we see them being set free. And how does that happen? Only happens through the supreme and undefeated power 
of Jesus Christ. So we see the authority of Jesus' teaching, praise him. We see the ascendancy of Jesus' power, praise him. Last thing, we see here the astonishment of Jesus' audience. The astonishment of Jesus' audience. Um, I was, over the summer, I was away on a holiday. And uh, it was a family affair. So I went away with my own family, but also went away with my brother and his family. Now, as part of the break, (laughs) my brother and I decided to take our little boys to see some French monster trucks. Okay. And already you can kind of imagine the joy that that brought to two little five-year-old boys. You know, they're just sort of standing there during the whole thing with their mouths open, looking at these, you know, pickups with tires that were sort of ten times bigger than, than they were. And they were just amazed by this. And, but it was more than that, you know? It's like they were looking at, the, looking at the monster trucks and it was almost a sense of, you know, intimidation and almost a sense of fear. You know, they didn't kind of have the categories in their minds to understand the, the awesomeness of what was in front of them. Friends, I want you to think about the reaction of the people to Jesus that day. Do you see what we're told about it? Do you see that it's emphasized? Look at verse 22. We're told that these people were amazed at Jesus' teaching. Then it's emphasized. Look at verse 27. They're astonished. They're amazed. But what I want you to understand is that it wasn't just a sense of delight. Do you see that? Like these people, that congregation in the synagogue, it wasn't just sort of rejoicing in Jesus Christ. No, this was a, a sense of alarm as well. Do you see that? Yes, they're amazed. Yes, they're astonished. But they are disturbed. And the authority that was on display. So this is, this is how I want to close. I just want to ask you if you've been there. Like this sense of astonishment, this sense of amazement at God and Jesus. Have you been there? Have you had that sense of wonder with God? Like I don't know, maybe a few years ago, not in here, I'm sure, in other places perhaps. You know, have you sat under a sermon and it's been incredible? You know, there's been such a sense of power in that place. You know, goosebumps in the back of your like, and you've been astonished by, by the reality of what's going on. Or maybe, maybe you've seen someone changed by the power of Jesus Christ. Have you seen that? A loved one, a friend, and, and you know, they've, they're different. They've clearly been transformed. God's done something, and you've been left astonished. Have you been there? Have you? I need you to see this morning that that there is not enough. It's just not enough. It's not enough for your eternal salvation. There has to be more. I mean, you see these people here in the synagogue and they they listen to Jesus and they're amazed by Jesus and yeah, they go and tell their friends about this, this man they've heard. There's no hint here that they were saved. 
Friends, it's one thing for you to be amazed at the power of God, and it's another thing altogether to come in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. And so you listen to me as we end with this. I am saying to you this morning, let your amazement at God lead to your eternal salvation. Will you? Let it lead to your soul being saved. Don't just marvel at God. Submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't just be amazed by God. Confess your sin and come to Jesus Christ. You be freed. Do you see it? You be set free from the bondage of evil. You be restored to a right place before God. Friends, let none of us uh, in this place today think that London City Presbyterian Church is a place of weakness because it isn't. This is the church of Jesus. This is the body of Jesus. And he is an infinitely powerful God. We should praise Jesus that, what does scripture say? All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. But we should praise Jesus this morning that through his people that he is using that authority today. Let's pray.